0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com
1: for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: High fly ball, deep left field. There it goes! See ya! Number 57, Aaron Judge, four away from Roger Maris. Two outs here, Shohei. Tawny, that's going to reach, and that could be extra bases. That is the 15th time that Shoah has beaten the shift this season, which is the most in baseball.
1: Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, September 15th. We are all but obligated to talk about Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani and the American League MVP race. We're also going to talk a little bit about the rule changes that came out last week right after we recorded, figure out how Max Muncy unbroke himself, talk about how O'Neal Cruz is actually kind of being a successful bat and not just a high exit velocity guy, and then Matt and I are each going to talk about a player you should know a little bit more about. Matt. I wrote about Shohei Ohtani and wins above replacement and the MVP race for our very good MLB.com site, and I have to say, um, I, I was like, the outcome was fun. One of the most excruciating articles I've had to write in like the last three years. It is, it is not fun to think through the vagaries of wins above replacement, like and how it works. And the reason we did it is because there's a lot of people who say, well. The metric isn't built for a two-way player like Shohei Ohtani, which is true, and therefore it's costing him a lot of value, which, eh, we'll get back to that. And if you were to look at the, let's say, Fangrass leaderboards, it was closer than this when I started writing, but Judge had hit a couple homers. Uh, Judge is a 9.7 wins above replacement, Ohtani is at 8.1, that's a pretty big gap, but if you think Ohtani is being shortchanged, all of a sudden that gap disappears. I I want to explain all this, but I guess like my top-level feeling is I don't care, like, War does a really good job of saying these guys are clearly the two best. And I don't think voters are going to pick just based on one having slightly more war. They're going to pick on, well, I care about Aaron Judge breaking a home run record, or I care about Shohei Otani doing this amazing two-way player thing, or, regrettably, some will care about the Yankees being good and the Angels being bad. I don't care about that part. Um, but it's it's like, how much is this going to matter to you if you were a voter, if you were picking? The the war number? Um, yeah, Probably
0: not a Ton. I mean, I think, you know, I, I forgot who said it first. Um, but like war is a conversation starter. It should not be a conversation enter, right? It's like, okay, let's my, my first thing I'm gonna look at when I'm voting is that's what first thing I'm gonna look at, and then I'm gonna go under the hood and sort of see like what are the other factors at play here. And so that's if, if I were to be voting and I'm not voting on the American League MVP this year, that's kind of what I would would take into account. This debate has become kind of all-encompassing. It feels a little straw man-ish because, like, there's a lot of people I – th- I think that the broad consensus is that Judge will – should and will win the MVP. I actually don't think – I think it's more just like – and I'm, I'm in this camp of, of let's not pretend Otani doesn't have a case. Like, Otani right. was unanimous last year on a bad team. You can't even say, like, oh, like, he was unanimous last year on a bad team and he has been, I would say, arguably better this year. So, like, let's just start from there. Like, you, you know, like anything you would want to use against him, it's like, well, no, he's actually maybe even better. And, like, oh, yeah, you you don't want to vote for a guy on a losing team. Well, he was unanimous last year, so obviously there's precedent for Yutani winning MVP while playing for a bad team. The difference this year, I think, is that last year the, the steepest competition was, like, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who was having, like, a fantastic, like— what would, you know, maybe like career year MVP type season, Aaron Judge, in addition to the home run thing, is having like an all-time great offensive season, while also playing center field in a way that like totally kind of gets overlooked
1: right no you totally know the last year Vlad had a great season probably wins the MVP I don't know 90% of other seasons but I think the way I phrased it at the time was it's a great season but the kind of great season you see somewhat regularly like you see a guy have a year like that if not every year every other year at least and so someone said well you should show hey Otani that in your opinion be the MVP every single year if he does what he's doing every single year and I'm like yeah yes like yeah, the baseline for me should be if Otani plays like this, he should be the MVP every single year unless someone does something so amazingly insane that it puts them in the conversation. If Aaron Judge was having the year that Vlad had last year, this isn't a conversation, right? Otani wins unanimously. Aaron Judge is not only, you know, going to break home run records and like well, let's be honest, the, the voters here are humans, right? Like that will carry weight. For a lot of people um but as you kind of alluded to it's not just the home runs so right now he's got a 205 weighted runs created plus where 100 is league average if you go back to the beginning of the integrated era that is a top 10 season in baseball history it's not just the homers obviously that fuels the number a little bit um but i I feel like the only wrong answer here is to say to take one side and try to then diminish the other guy as though they're not both having amazing seasons like 15 years from now, 30 years from now, are we talking about both of these years? Probably yes. Will we care that one won an award and one didn't? Doubtful. Like, they're, they're both amazingly good. So the only, I think the only argument here is, does the metric fully capture what Otani's doing? And I would say no, but not in a way that's necessarily specific to him, right, if that makes sense. Uh, because... It's not giving Judge extra credit for stepping into play center field. Like you said, I mean, it does in the positional adjustment, but not in the sense of, oh, he's helping keep his collapsing playoff team afloat. Uh, by the way, Angels and Yankees have, like, exactly identical second-half records. Nobody seems to want to talk about that part. Um, and it, people are like, well, he is, Judge, or excuse me, Otani is filling in uh, two roster spots. And it's like, how do you measure that? I, like, what's the value of the last roster spot on a team? And what I kept coming back to is, How many roster spots are there on a team? Because it seems like it changes like every month. Remember, like the first month this year, it was 28, and then it was 26, but you could have a different number of pitchers the month later, and now it's back up to 28. How much are we valuing the bottom roster spot? I don't know the right answer, and I think what I'm landing on is, is it worth like partial points of war? Yeah, probably. Is it going to get him to where judges? No, I I don't think so.
0: I think the, the problem for Otani, and you addressed this slightly in the piece, is, or I should say you address this directly in the piece, is that the Angels have had to use a six-man rotation with Otani, and I think that actually diminishes the idea that he's really saving their, giving them a lot more roster flexibility. No, because they still actually have to go and get five other pitchers, in addition to him, and this is not to diminish Otani, I think it just means that like he's actually as amazing as he is, and I think in any other non-judge year, like what Judge is having, he'd be winning MVP. I think it's just like, that doesn't actually carry much weight for me, because I don't think he's actually really helping the roster flexibility that much. If he was able to do this, and this would be incredible, with a five-man rotation, and they were able to use that extra roster spot... On a like, in an actionable way that was helping their team. Presumably, because one of the big things now is teams play short benches on offense. They usually play only have, like, four guys. So, like, if he was able to actually give them a, like, extra, like, bench bat or someone who was, like, a really good, like, multi-positional player that they otherwise would not have and was, like, legitimately giving their manager, like, a lot more options in terms of building out the lineup and late-game situations, I think then you would have an argument that, like, okay, he actually is really giving them a strategic advantage in his two anus, but the fact that they still have to go get another um, starting pitcher, and as we've seen with the Angels over the years, them trying to get a starting pitch, uh, five starting pitchers, let let alone six, has been a big problem. So that 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 argument doesn't actually carry that much weight for me.
1: I don't know how much you watched the Angels over the last two days, Um, just speaking about being shorthanded, because uh, Andrew Velasquez injured his knee the other day, and they're on a road trip. They were in in Cleveland, I think. And they couldn't get a guy there in time, David Fletcher, as an injured hand, so he could field, but he can't bat. So he bunted five straight plate appearances, <laughs> which at first I didn't realize about the Velasquez situation. So I was just like, what are they doing? And then I learned about that part and it made a little bit sense. But uh, it's like that sort of encapsulates the entire Angels situation right now. And, and I feel like we can't talk about how great Otani is and Mike Trout's home run streak without pointing out that they just clinched their seventh straight losing season. That's the longest streak in the majors. It matches the longest streak in the history of the Angels you have Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, and you keep losing. It's just, it, it hurts me. Um, the last thing I wanted to say about Otani, too, is you mentioned this about the six man rotation, how that, that kind of hurts, right? Because he's playing DH every day, he's also preventing Mike Trout from playing DH, getting these rest days. You know, like, and again, not trying to take anything away from Otani. I would consider voting for him if I had a vote. Um, but I feel like the two way value it gives and it takes away kind of at the same time. And if war doesn't account for that, well, I don't know that war gets proper credit to someone like Kiké Hernández or Chris Taylor either. It's not Otani specific to me, I guess.
0: Now, now the place where I think this debate would—I don't know if I would want to say more interesting or more compelling—but like, would be if Judge was basically you know, like last year. Vlad, just for context, so everyone's aware, you said Judge has a 205 weighted runs created plus this year. Last year, Vlad Jr. in his like insane year was at 166. So we're talking about 40 right. points of weight runs created plus. What would be interesting to me? is if Judge has the same number of home— like, there's an easy world where Judge has 58, 57 home runs right now and has a 166-weight-runs created plus. So, like, he might be setting home run history, but doing it in a way that's, like, again, the type of good season we see every year. Then I think probably the knives would really be out on this MVP debate, but I think most people are kind of like, hey, let's just recognize— And what I'm trying to say is, like, let's recognize Shohei that there's, like, there is a case to be made for him, but just because Judge is legitimately having one of the great offensive seasons, I think he's going to win
1: MVP, and, like, rightfully so. Here's what I think is going to happen. I agree with you, Judge is going to win MVP. Would you agree with me that this is an extremely close race? You could easily pick either guy, and if there's an edge to Judge, it's by, like, an eyelash? Is that right?
0: I think based on, like, the MVP watch we've done on MLB.com, and we have another one, like,
1: and it's not exactly— Just, i just mean in your opinion like it's a very close race right it is a close race yes because what I think you're gonna say is what I was about to say is that judge is actually gonna kill it in the race because I think every voter is gonna have him by like a slight hair but if everybody does that then you know there's no ranked choice voting here <laughs> you know like you're you're ranking him first
0: yeah i think I think he will probably you know it's 30, 30 voters i bet you he gets yeah. at least 26 first place votes yes probably with that. and
1: it's going to and it's going to look like a landslide but it's not really going to be a landslide. <laughs> when otani second on every single ballot <laughs> right right that that's what i'm trying to get to anyway um please appreciate the greatness of both of these guys and if you like one it doesn't mean the other one's not doing something right like we are kind of fortunate to have two seasons like this at the same time it would be nice to have one of them in the nl and one of them in the al and we could avoid all this angst and you could have two pretty clear um by the way i didn't realize this till yesterday i know we were talking about this aaron judge has an outside shot at the triple crown and paul goldschmidt has an outside shot at the triple crown and i usually don't care about the triple crown but if you got two in the same season i think even i would step back and say "Uh, okay that's that's pretty cool
0: (laughs) yes yes mike the triple crown it is cool the thing with judge now is that now that Luis arise hurt his hamstring that could actually hurt judges chances of winning the triple crown because if arise misses time He'll stay. It's going to be much harder for him to come down. He's at three twenty right now. Judge is at three ten, so Judge really needs a rise to kind of go in a little slump while he hits, you know, a little better than than three three twenty. And if rise misses time, that just makes it that much harder. All
1: right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with our three batter minimum. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news. We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We move into our three batter minimum for each week. We touch on three important topics uh, and we have to talk about all the rule changes that came out uh, last week. We just didn't get a chance to do it because it came out after we last recorded. And um, if you didn't see what they were, there's going to be a pitch clock next year. So excited about that. There's going to be a limit on pickoffs, which I think is super interesting in a way I want to explain a um let's say poorly named shift band, because I don't really think that's what's happening, and bigger bases. I I think you and I have been talking about the pitch clock idea for five years, maybe. Like I'm ex- extremely in favor of it. That's right, because we talked about going to see it in person at a minor league game earlier this yep. year. And uh it's it is great. I cannot wait to see it in the majors. My prediction is the first three weeks of the season are going to be a little iffy because you're going to have some veteran pitchers who aren't used to this uh, say absolutely not. But I think all the younger guys who have been in the minors or even guys who have been down there in rehab will be like, oh, this is fine. I, I can work with this. And so I think what's going to happen is once you get past the initial like rocky adjustment period, you're going to wonder how you ever lived without it.
0: I think that's right. I think that there is, you know, I think there's probably going to be some moments in September and October where some of that like tense, like... Like that tension you get when like the the, the pitchers staring in and kind of taking their time, there might be something a little bit lost there. And I actually but I think it's gonna to be totally worth it for like the other ninety eight percent of the time. And also like I think I've seen some players sort of say, Oh, I kinda of wish they I'm o- I'm okay with the pitch clock. I wish they had sort of had a different, you know, maybe they changed it for kind of close and late situations so that the rules were a little different. And, you know, in the in the press conference when they announced The rule changes, uh, Morgan Sword, who's the uh, EVP of uh, baseball operations for Major League Baseball, basically he was asked about that and he basically said, like, yeah, we thought about it, but it just felt so weird to have different sets of rules for different parts of the game. Imagine an NBA game where it's like, well, we've got a 24-second clock for the first three quarters, but in the fourth quarter, you know, we have a 28-second clock. It's just like I think that people will get used to it and the rhythm will will kind of, you know, become something we all get used to and becomes kind of second nature.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that's interesting. You say that the only thing I can think of off the top of my head that's different is I guess in the postseason, they don't have the runner on second in extra innings, right? Otherwise, there's no situations where a rule applies or doesn't apply that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, you know, and there's hopefully some secondary benefits to this. If you can't take as much time between pitches, maybe you get the opportunity, or maybe you don't have the opportunity to throw up max strength every single time. Maybe that's more contact. Like, so this thing's going to have to play out. Um, but I'm excited about that. And I think one thing people don't quite understand is part of the reason the pickoff limit exists, so you can throw over twice with the caveat that I'll explain in a second, is you kind of need that for a pitch clock to work. Otherwise, in the minor a couple years ago, they tried it, and guys would just step off and reset the clock, and that like completely defeats the purpose. I guess it's officially called a disengagement, but that's kind of what we're talking about here. I'm excited for this. Um, Because I want to see what happens after guys have picked off, tried to pick off somebody twice, because I think what's getting lost here is a lot of people see a limit of two, and they're like, well, okay, Uh, then the guy can just walk down to second base, and you can't do anything about it, and that's not true. You can still throw over that third time, it's just you have to get him. If you don't get him out, uh, then it's a balk. And I think that's going to be interesting because the cat and mouse game after two of like, how far off do I go knowing he has to get me? Like, I can't take a 45-foot lead because then I'm going to get picked off and still an out. I also think the the thing we haven't thought through enough yet, and this isn't a problem with a rule, it's just a thing that'll happen, right? Two pickoffs, guy takes a big lead, pitcher throws over, gets the guy, clearly. First baseman misses the tag, right? Pitcher didn't do anything wrong, but it's not an out. So the first baseman kind of eats that buck. I think that's going to happen, and that's that's going to be wild. I know
0: that there was a lot of, like, you know, like uh, outreach, and they talked about this. Like, I think Morgan Sore talked about this. Theo Epstein talked about this, of, like, polling fans. And, like, one thing fans want more of is, like, stolen bases, right? Stolen bases are fun. And the best part about this is this increases stolen bases without the, like, interminable throws to first base. You know, <laughs> like, you know, people forget this, but, like, back when the heyday of stolen bases – they used to throw to first base all the time. Vince Coleman once had 17 throw. I think it was 17 or 18 throws to first base while he was there. So this is like the benefits wait, of... Wait,
1: on, on one play? Like, on,
0: one, on one. I've
1: never heard that before.
0: Our uh, our colleague Matt Monaghan wrote a story about this a couple years ago.
1: Wow.
0: That's awful. Uh, it's awful. But so this is like the benefits of the stolen bases without that stuff. So like stolen bases are fun. We've seen this in the minors where there have been... Um, been the pitch clock there's been an increase in stolen base attempts and that's fun like people people like it action on the bases that's the good stuff um the other secondary benefit of the pitch clock that i think players will eventually start to appreciate and there was a piece that anthony castrofence wrote on mlb.com where he was talking to minor leaguers like hey what's been your experience and a few of them were like one thing i love is i'm spending a lot less time at the ballpark the game is shorter i get home a lot earlier I get to bed. I get more sleep. This has like been good for my like personal day to day health. And I think that that's like a thing that has like not really been a part of this conversation. That I do think in the end will be something that maybe not all players, that a lot of players will come to appreciate.
1: That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way because I think a lot of this conversation has been kind of focused on shortening the length of games, which is probably a good thing. But we conflate too easily length of game and pace of game. Like I, I want more action to be happening if it's three and a half hour game and there's a ton of stuff happening like i'm fine with that but i I guess the way you put that is really interesting and i hadn't really thought about that um because anything you can do to help make the players lives a little easier i think i i think is valid and and the goal is pace
0: but like the games have been as a result have been like 20 or 30 minutes shorter um in aggregate in games of the pitch clock so it's pretty clear that's where this is headed
1: yeah no i I see a lot of complaints about well what if it's the bottom of the ninth and two outs and two strikes and you know, an automatic strike is called and the game's over because the batter wasn't in the box. Like, well, get in the box. <laughs> and how, I mean, have we never seen an NFL playoff game end because the offense couldn't get to the line before the clock expired? I, or,
0: or a, or a false start took them out of field goal range. Right. Like it's,
1: this, this 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 type of stuff.
0: <laughs> this stuff happens. Like that's 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 where there are rules. And also, I mean, we've also seen the number of infractions has gone down drastically. Now there's like. In the AAA this year, now we're down to like less than half an infraction per game. So basically, it's like each team is having an, an infraction like once, what is it, once every four games or something like that? It's like. Something like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's players have gotten used to it nothing
1: else okay let's let's talk about what's called the shift ban but isn't necessarily a shift ban um i have said on twitter and on this show i don't know eleven thousand times over the last six years how much i hate the idea of a shift ban like i've been 100 percent against it i still don't love it but the more i thought through this one um there's there's something i'm kind of interested to see and because someone said this to me on twitter and i really liked it uh this was andy mcdonald and he said they have basically introduced a true risk reward into the shift instead of banning it and i was like that's a perfect way to explain, I really like that a lot. So here's here's the rule, there's really only one rule. You gotta have two infielders on the left side of second base, on the dirt, or in closer, and you gotta have two infielders on the right side of second base. So, just in terms of how many fielders you have, that means there's no more four-man outfields, which I don't think anybody's gonna care about losing that so much. And there's technically not any three-man infields like to the right side, like the Joey Gallo shift with a big caveat. You can do that. You can still have three infielders on the right side, except since you got to have two infielders on the left side, you basically can't go like with an empty formation over there. You can't just have your shortstop on the left and three infielders on the right. You can still have three fielders on the right, but you probably got to take your left fielder over and do that, right? So your formation would be, let's say a shortstop right up the middle. And then on the right side, you'd have second baseman, first baseman, giant air quotes, left fielder. And now you've kind of left left field open. So that changes the math for me because all these left-handed hitters for years, people have been like, oh, go the other way, beat the shift. If you stop, if you start doing that, they'll stop shifting you. And it's like, no, they won't. (laughs) They they won't. If you can make Bryce Harper try to be a singles hitter by moving some of your fielders around, you do that 100% of the time and you never, ever stop doing that. But now the calculus is a little different. If you don't have a left fielder, all of a sudden you go opposite field. Maybe that's a double. Maybe it's a triple and that that changes it so maybe hitters are more likely to try at that point not that it's easy and maybe the uh, opposing fielders just won't shift you in that way because they don't want to give you that opportunity like that's that's interesting to me like it is really a risk reward you can still do pretty much whatever you want as long as you got two fielders on the one side and two fielders on the other side it's not really like a ban it just don't do this one thing
0: and two two points on that one of which is that like I'm not even sure hitters need to try. Like, if you look at you look at look at spray charts time and again, there's a lot of left-handed hitters who hit for power to the opposite field, but only hit ground balls to the pull side. So there's actually got a lot of guys who will hit fly balls to left field, but really only hit ground balls to the right side. Those are the guys, and I'm going to talk about one a little later in the podcast, um, who like this really will apply to and be a really interesting decision decision point to be made on them. Um, the second point is that like. This goes in line, like th- this is the idea of like, oh, maybe we'll get balls like in open field where like the runners are just like running and like there's like mayhem on the bases. Th- again, this goes back to what I was saying before. When you pull fans, this is what they want. They want more action on the bases, and like this would be an unconventional way to generate more action on the bases. But I- I'm going to, like you, I'm going to steal this. Was it Andy McDonald's as you said? I'm going to steal a- this. Andy. Yeah. This this risk reward idea. It's like you can still do it. You just have to give up something in order to do it. Like yeah, you have to open a- up the field a lot.
1: Totally. But uh, let's let's be clear on what it's not gonna do. I think there are people out there who think this is gonna like completely drop strikeouts down and there's gonna be a ton more contact. Absolutely not. Maybe for a couple of guys, but strikeouts come from pitchers and velocity and how amazingly good they are. It's not gonna massively change batting averages. A couple points here and there on batting average and balls in play. Like again, maybe it helps like the Anthony Rizzo types, but across the board, not really. And I've uh, one thing I've struggled with, people have at, tweeted at me and said, hey, are you going to write about like who this helps and hurts? And I'm like, I don't really want to, in part because I'm not sure how possible it is to do it, because you're not going from these crazy defensive positions into you know, a traditional stand-at-the-normal spots you would see in the rule book. You're still going to see guys who are getting shifted in all sorts of ways, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen like a lefty hit a ground ball to the right side of the infield, and the short right-field rover picks it up and throws him out. The broadcaster's like, ah, oh, lost a hit to the shift and it's like come on man that ball went right through the traditional second baseman spot the shift didn't make that an out it made it a different kind of out so i'm not going to like credit him with a shift hit it's like it's really difficult to do that i'm not even sure it's worth it totally and
0: i'll admit i'm and i've I've said this on on the podcast before like i i'm not under the illusion that this is going to like quote unquote solve all the problems created by the the aggressive shifting but i'm curious to see what happens it's like i don't think this is that drastic of a change i think it's something that like is could be interesting. It could be nothing. But I'm like, I kind of want to see what happens. And one of the, like, and this was another thing that, that Commissioner Manfred said in the press conference, where he basically was like, listen, this the new rules committee. One of the changes was that instead of having like a year to make cha- like, like a calendar year to announce changes and enforce them, there's now 45 days. So like, you could actually make changes. I'm not sure they do in season changes, but it just means that like, if you want to make a change. On the, like, if you decide, hey, I want to make a change for next year, you can make, make a change on November 1st, and it's like, it's, uh can be made before April 1st the next year.
1: One type of player I think this will benefit, and it's nothing to do with hitting, are the defensively versatile infield, outfield guys. Because the way it works now is when you have the right field rover, it's almost always the shortstop or the, or the third baseman. And now, if you're going to do it, you have to have an outfielder. And it's like, do I really want some of the left fielders in this game picking up a ground ball and throwing to first base? I'm not saying they can't do it. They're all Major League Baseball players, but I don't know. How weird would it be to say, pick a name at random, A.J. Pollock, right? Do you want A.J. Pollock fielding a ground ball and throwing to first base? Or do you want someone with experience doing that? You know, Chris Taylor, uh, you know, Nick Gordon, Kike Hernandez, that kind of guy. Like, I, I think those guys might have a little bit more value now because they can play that spot in a way that infielders are no longer allowed to and outfielders probably can't. So I, If I'm one of those guys, I'm probably stoked about this.
0: That's a really good point. That's a really good point.
1: All right. The last thing, bigger bases. Uh, bases have been 15 inches square. They will now be 18 inches square. I think the best way to think about this is the distance between first and second, and also second or third, shrinks by four and a half inches. Uh, I don't have any downsides to this. It's fine. I don't think anybody will notice or care. That That's not going to probably massively increased stolen bases but it's interesting to think of how many bang bang plays were four and a half inches will matter a lot and so that's what we're gonna see a lot of next year's oh with last year's bases bah, 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 bah. it's fine I have, I have no particularly strong feelings on this one do you no
0: I think this was the one rule that passed unanimously in the rules committee so it feels like most people are like okay we're
1: on, we're, we're cool with this one all right uh we're gonna move on to our second topic here uh, Mac I don't know if you've heard the Dodgers are playing very good baseball uh, Max Muncie who got up to Just a terrible start. Remember, he got hurt the very last game of last year against the Giants and um, got off to just a really bad start. Through July 27th, 160, 322, 277, a 599 OPS. And um, he was, I think a couple places reported this. I was reading it in The Athletic. In a series against the Rockies, he's changed the way he swung. He started taking a half step back with his left foot. He's a left-handed hitter. This is his back foot. And he's taking a step back, which I know sounds weird to think about it, but uh, we've seen it. I think Nolan Arenado started doing this a couple years ago. We've, we've seen guys do this before because basically what he was trying to do is his swing plane was off. His balance was off. Like everything was just off. Like he was still making good swing decisions. Just wasn't making any good contact with it. Well, since then, he is at 915 OPS. He has upped his OPS by 316 points. Since then. Interestingly, he's not making more contact. He's making less contact. He's actually striking out more, and he's upped his OPS for 316 points. This is what we talk about. I don't want to say strikeouts don't matter, but not as much as people would like them to. Uh, you'll be unsurprised to know that he's hitting the ball in the air a lot more, and his hard hit rate is way up 40% uh, through that July 27th date, 52% since then. And it's weird to say this about a team that might break the all time wins record. There's a lot of worry points on the Dodgers. Like they don't have a healthy rotation because that Tony Gonsolin's hurt. I don't trust Craig Kimbrel at all. And uh, you know Cody Bellinger hasn't figured it out. Chris Taylor cannot hit the ball right now. It's it's weird. Like they're a phenomenal team, and yet man, they really needed Max Muncy to figure this out.
0: It definitely changes the scope of their lineup. And he was, <clears throat> I mean, he was one of the most disappointing players for the first two months of the season, three months. And I I kind of thought that like. Without being like, hey, obviously I'm not a doctor and I have not seen like, you know, have not examined him, but like maybe that that injury was like lingered. It was hard. It was it was like, you know, Occam's razor. It seems like maybe that's what's lingering and causing these issues. Um, but if you look if you look at, at his savant page, his his heart hit rate by month is such like a nice little like. Uh, steady, up, up. It's, like, almost perfect. Like, goes up, like, you know, steadily every month. And now it's, like, it's it's way above average, at least over the last, you know, you know month or two. And as always, the thing about Muncy is that his eye has never wavered. He's remained in, like, the 100th percentile for chase rate and walk rate. So, like, he's not swinging at bad stuff. He's hitting the ball harder. It's, like, the Max Muncy that we know and love. And he was the guy I was alluding to earlier. Because one weird thing about Max Muncy, I was looking at his spray chart today, he literally does not have a a hit to left field this year a non homer hit to left field um and but he's hit the ball a lot of balls there a lot of like not that hard hit fly balls so he's exactly the kind of guy that with you know but he, he's also someone that has been shifted he gets shifted like eighty nine percent of the time so he's exactly the kind of guy that there's like a real kind of like um risk reward that you talked about next year of hey, we can shift him, but if we're leaving left field wide open suddenly this like lazy fly ball to left field like oh shoot that's now a double more maybe a triple but more likely a double for max munsey running but if there's runners on base it's like a real risk
1: yeah it's it's huge for them to have impact you look at that lineup right uh the top three uh Bette, turner and freeman arguably well clearly the best three in baseball I, I almost wonder if someone should go back and do a deep dive of is this the best top three in baseball history because Those are three MVP guys right there. Uh, Trace Thompson has been, like, shockingly good. Justin Turner, who started off horribly, has been much better lately. Will Smith has been great. And now if you add Max Muncy into this mix as well, uh, I shouldn't overlook Gavin Lux, who's also been pretty good too. Uh, Don't be surprised the Dodgers have lots of good players because all they do (laughs) is keep winning games, I guess is what I would say. Uh, Are we we focusing too much on the negative and not enough on the positive? Like, they have weaknesses, there's no doubt. But also they might break the all-time wins record.
0: It's, I mean, the Dodgers conversation is so kind of convoluted now because, you know, you did a piece about this a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago of just like how historically great they've been over the last 10 years. And they have been. So, it, and they've run away with the division again. You know, they clinch this week. It's like easy peasy. And then it just becomes like, okay, like, are they going to win the World Series? You know, like, and they've won one World Series. Some people, not me, like put an asterisk on it because it happened in the pandemic season. Oh, it was I harder know I in a that mold. year. <laughs> That's fine. That's like, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't create the the public conversation. I'm just saying it's it's out there. There's this belief, and also then they ha- they also lost the the Astros, the year of the sign stealing scandal, and like there's all this stuff. So it's like, it it feels like there's this this. In, it does still feel like kind of this incomplete dynasty, and. Uh, so that's that's obviously where the conversation is now. Having Muncie back really lengthens that that lineup, and that will go in as the prohibitive favorites, despite all the other like kind of negatives you mentioned. Like all the other teams have 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 flaws
1: too. Well, that's actually a good point. We should probably run those down at some point. Like the Mets don't have enough power hitting. You know, like the the, the Cardinals probably have a flaw, but I can't think of it right now. The Cardinals have been playing so well. They, they, we'll they don't really have like
0: they don't really have an ace pitcher that scares you.
1: Okay, there you go. There you go. That's Adam Wainwright disrespect there, but we'll get back to that. I wanted to check in on O'Neill Cruz. I know we talked about him a couple weeks ago when he hit the hardest hit ball of the StatCast era, yet he wasn't actually a very good player. Like, he got off to a really bad start. In his first 50 games, he hit 196, a 248, a 386 slugging, and it seemed like he was becoming something of like a a new school, old school flashpoint where all the old school fans are like, I don't care how hard he hits the ball. He's not helping the team win, which is like, that's fair. Like ha- Having a great exit velocity number doesn't necessarily make you a great player. I, I think you and I talked about this. And we were actually somewhat down on him at that point. Well, in his last 20 games, he has 954 OPS. He's slugging 625. And I d- still don't think that guarantees he's going to be great. He's still striking out too much. But... When I see all the angst over the exit velocity numbers, I'm like, this is just measuring what scouts have been looking at for 150 years. Like, it is a useful scouting thing to know that this guy crushes the ball, and that's why maybe you give him a little bit more length than a guy who just doesn't hit the ball that hard, you know, because you're starting to see the talent come out. Uh, Again, I don't think this is the new normal based on three weeks of play here. But don't forget, he got off to a really bad start in AAA this year, too. He hit 167 in his first 20 games. And if you look at his you know, first 50 this year compared to his last 20, no strikeout rate decrease, not great, but he's not chasing as much. Huge drop in chase, chase rate from 37% to 26%. If you look at the underlying numbers, the expected weighted on base, two things are true. Uh, one thing is that it's up by like 46 points. Like he is clearly doing something better under the hood, but also he's outperforming it by 80 points over his last 20 games. So I think at the same time we can say, it's Definitely getting better. It's not quite there yet, but if you look at his season line, the league average bat now, and there's clearly a lot more talent in there. I just I'm happy to see that we're seeing some actual production and not just look at the exit velocity.
0: the The chase rate is really the thing. If I'm looking, if I'm looking for like a real like positive signs, silver lining of everything, like that's it. Like, you know, I I talked about Max Muncie's hard hit rate kind of going up, 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 up. If you look at the month-by-month for O'Neill Cruise, the chase rate, it's like down, 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 down. July, it was 38, August, it was 32. This month so far, it's 22, right? So like, that's like, okay, we're seeing like a really, really good trend. I'm not saying it's gonna continue just like continue to go down, 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 but it just shows some signs of like, okay, I'm here. I'm kind of figuring this out. Remember in spring training, Pirates fans were clamoring for this guy to be on the opening day roster, and it was like, oh, get him on the opening day roster. And then he went to AAA, and he was terrible. And then he like was like, oh. And then it was like, well, maybe they should have sent, Maybe they were right to send him down. And then suddenly it was like, he, whether that was because he was pissed he got sent to AAA, or maybe he just needed some more seasoning, we will not know. But it was clear that he figured something out and started raking. And it's possible that we're seeing some version of the same thing now, where like he was a little overwhelmed by big major league stuff when he got here, and now is kind of like, okay, figuring it out and getting a better sense of what to swing at. What not to swing out because, man, yes, it would be cool for baseball if this guy really figured it out and became this just like crazy, outrageous, like multi-tool dynamic superstar who basically, you know, sets stat cast records in every way imaginable.
1: I also brought him up because I had to share this pirate stat that I found that O'Neill Cruz might be the guy to break. He obviously can be an elite power hitter. Did you know the Pirates have not had a 40-home run hitter since Willie Stargell in 1973? They came close. Brian Giles had seasons of 39 and 38. Since 1974, there have been 233 different 40-home run seasons. There have been 19 seasons where a team has had at least two 40-home run guys. The Pirates have not had a single 40-home run hitter. in like Before you and I were bored, we're talking like half a century here. That's the wildest thing.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, the dimensions of their of PNC Park make it almost impossible for a right-handed hitter to hit forty home runs there. I mean, like to right center, to left center field, it's like it's like four ten. You know, I think that like peak Jason Bay probably would have hit forty home runs in like a more normal ballpark. So it needs to be a left-handed hitter, as Brian Giles was, and as O'Neill Cruz is. So like if there's a guy to do it, this is the guy.
1: I'm going to ask you a trivia question that you have no shot of getting, and that's why I'm going to ask you. Since 1974, the Yankees have hit the most home runs in baseball. The Pirates have hit the 24th most home runs in baseball, and obviously some expansion teams came around after that. By how many home runs is the gap between the number one Yankees and the number 24 Pirates in home runs since 1974?
0: Um, so what's what, that? 40, 48 years. I'm going to guess it's like 100 per year, so 4,800.
1: Uh, well, no, a little too much. that uh, Two thousand five hundred and twenty-two. I don't think they got <laughs> out homered by hundred every year. But, you know, they had Barry Bonds at some point.
0: <laughs> anyway, I, like, his, his, I just looked it up. His career high with the with the Pirates was was uh, was thirty-four. Of course, baseball in nineteen ninety-two. I think thirty-four like was like second in the National League. So
1: right. And then he went to the known hitters park of San Francisco, and it was totally fine from there. We'll I'll take a quick break, and we will talk about a pair of guys you should talk about a little bit more. We're back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. I always like to end with a pair of guys that you should be talking about a little more. My guy is the perpetual swingman, Ross Stripling, who was maybe the number six Blue Jays starter to begin the year. Listen to the rotation they had to start the year. Really good, right? Kevin Gaussman, Alk Noah, Jose Barrios, Hyunjin Ryu, Yusei Kikuchi. Well, you got hurt. Kikuchi's been awful. Barrios has been kind of terrible. Ross Stripling is probably their number three starter right now. He probably starts a playoff game over Jose Brios, if you can believe that or not. And that's partially because Brios has been very good, but it's also because Stripling has been great. He has 10 straight starts, allowing three runs or less, six straight starts, going six innings or more. Since he returned to the rotation full-time on June 6th after Ryu got hurt, uh, there are 144 starters with 50 innings. His on-base percentage allowed against is the fifth best he is getting out about 75% of the time. And this is a list where number one is Shane McClanahan. Number three is Justin Verlander. Like he is pitching like he's one of the elites in the game. And he's really come a long way from being a, a- Fifth round pick by the Dodgers in 2012. I believe a guest of this podcast somewhere around 2016. Uh, he's also known for being like a, an investment banker in the offseason. Like he's a really interesting guy. Uh, as a Dodger from 2016 to 2020, he started 41% of his games, which I, I think tells you what his role has been. Start when you need me to. Or leave when you need me to. Uh, I'll be there wherever you need He actually got a save for the Blue Jays earlier this year. Made the all star game in 2018, pitched in five different postseason series. In the pandemic year of 2020, he was really struggling uh, with the Dodgers. They traded him to the Blue Jays, only gotten the two games that year. He was fine last year. And again, he was a depth guy, you know, because you can't count on Nate Pearson and you got like Trent Rich- uh, Richard, Trevor Richards and Trent Thornton floating around. And all of a sudden, <laughs> Ross Stripling, I want to say this again, is going to start a playoff game. For the Blue Jays, which is just the wildest thing to me. He never did it with the Dodgers. This would be his first. What's changed for him this year? He's not throwing harder. not getting strikeouts. Uh, He's changed his pitch types. Against righties, he's added a brand new sinker. And he's upped his slider to be his primary pitch, so he's east-west against them. Against lefties, he's throwing his change up way more, up from 22% to 38%. You kind of figure the investment banker baseball player would be pretty interested in his pitch metrics, and he certainly is. And it's just a cool story. Like a guy that was the afterthoughts afterthought for the Blue Jays this year is now becoming one of their most important pitchers, uh, behind two very good starters in Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman. It's going to be cool to see him get a playoff start.
0: It's. He also raises the question, I've started to think about this a bit recently, it's like that's going to surprise people when, he, you know, because the, the wild card series and the Blue Jays are going to be in the wild card series is three game series, three straight days, right? One park. One park. I think you're right. I think I th- Gasman's going to start game one, Manoa game two, game three, I think probably pe- people who haven't thought about it just are sort of assuming Barrios is going to be it. But I think people are going to be surprised to see when it's very likely – I don't think it's a guarantee, but I think it's very likely Stripling will get the ball based on the way he's pitched. And then like suddenly develop like we saw this with the old wild card game where it was a one game and you you could tweak your roster and make it a little bit different for one game. So a lot of times teams were like putting like speedsters and defensive specialists because they're like, oh, we don't need starting pitchers. Like, and, like with a three-game series on three straight days, it's – a different version of that of that sort of decision tree where it's like well we don't need five starters do we so it's like do we want Brios as a long man like do we take extra do we take fewer relievers cuz it's just 3 days and like we're just going to figure it out like so like the decisions that teams make like it'll be I'm curious to see how all the different clubs approach this cuz there's a lot of different ways you could go with it with 3 games in 3 days and a set roster and wanting to try and maximize your your flexibility I think you do take Brios in that in that situation cuz even if you don't think he's necessarily that good he's stretched out and so like if you want to maybe take fewer bull, fewer relievers you know in one game hey if one of my guys gets rocked i can just put him in and he could give me four innings and save the bullpen so i think that that's probably what what happens but um it's uh it's something that i think that is a maybe next podcast or the one right before the right before the wild card round we can really delve into because i think those roster decisions are going to be really interesting
1: yeah that that is fascinating. I I do think you take Brios just in case somebody gets hurt in the first inning like you need a guy. Their number 5 starter right now is probably Mitch White who, you know, you could maybe leave off. But you're right, if it's the Dodgers, like, I don't know if Dustin May is a starter right now, or is he just like a three-inning guy? I mean, they, they might not know that either. I do think that's really interesting. But just the fact that Stripling is going to get the ball. Like, if you told Jay's fans in March, hey, uh, Stripling's your number three starter come September, they'd be like, oh my God, how many games did we lose? How badly did this go? But no, he's he's been great. Not only that, he's your number
0: three starter, and you should feel pretty good about it.
1: Well, yes. Also that. You should feel confident in that. <laughs> Baseball is a very weird sport. All right. Who do you have? Uh, my guy. I'm actually – I'm actually. listeners
0: should know. I'm sort of stealing this one because Mike, Mike mentioned this to me. And I was like, oh, I'm going to make this Make this my guy. And it's not necessarily for a positive reason, but it's just an interesting reason why we should be talking about this guy more. And that is guardian center f- fielder Miles Straw, who could set a quote-unquote – record um this year and that record is the highest number of outs above average against and what does that mean it basically means the short way of saying it is like he's had the best accumulative defense played against him this year or since Statcast began tracking this and i think this one was started tracking in 2016 is that correct 16 yes so 16 so since from 2016 until now um, Miles Straw this year has had 19 outs above average against him. That is by far and away the most this year. Number two on the list is Santiago Espinal with um, 10. The previous record was a, uh, like a three-way tie between Jose Altuve, Jordy Mercer, and Dee gordon in various years with 15 outs above average against. So Miles Straw is <laughs> the same way. Aaron Judge is running away with the uh, the home run lead relative to the league. Miles Straw is running away with the the uh, outs above average uh, record relatively this year and both since we started tracking this. What I find most interesting about this is I actually think it tells a story about the psychology of fielders, because if you look at the list both this year and in past year of like the highest um, outs above average against, um, you see a pattern emerge. First and foremost, this is a counting stat, right? So you need guys who put the ball in play a lot. So that's a big factor. But then you also see a lot of really fast guys without a lot of power. And I think that actually shows you that basically when these guys are up, defenders are kind of more on their toes because they're like, hey, this guy's going to put the ball in play. He's almost certainly not going to hit it over my head or out of the ballpark. And if I'm not on my toes, if you're an infielder, he could beat it out as a ground ball. Or if I'm an outfielder, he could turn a single into a double or a double into a triple. And, like, it kind of – this leaderboard, like, bears it out – Pretty clearly. This year, the top five is Straw, Santiago Espinal, Ahmed Rosario, Kristen Pache, and Nick Allen. And then, as I mentioned, the leaders in the past, Altuve, Mercer, Strange Gordon, Nick Ahmed, Billy Burns. It's like it tracks pretty closely. It's all very much the same archetype. Obviously, Altuve, a better overall hitter than the rest of those guys, but it's like it's a very similar um, hitting profile.
1: Yeah, I think it's easy to look at that and say, wow, this is the guy who's getting robbed the most. And it maybe there's a little bit of that but you're right it's the guy who's presenting the most opportunities uh, for defenses to make plays on you and since uh, on certain plays outs above average does take into account the batter's speed and straw has elite speed i think just being who he is turns those opportunities into harder ones metrically than it would be like if albert Pujols was hitting I- i've got three uh miles straw thoughts i think um the first is that if you look at the cleveland season uh, he was their leadoff guy for most of the year because he's got a lead speed, but he's also got a 56 OPS plus. <laughs> like, you not actually adding any value. And so around, what was this? Uh, June, middle of June, um, they put Steven Kwan as their lead off hitter. They bumped Miles Straw down to the nine spot, almost made him like a secondary lead off hitter. But, but really like the least amount of plate appearances you can get him probably the better because their top three uh, right now is, is Kwan, uh, Amit Rosario, Jose Ramirez, which like we've had our criticisms of the, the Cleveland lineup, but that's actually pretty good top three, I respect that. Uh, my second straw thought was um, back in 2016, he was an A-ball prospect for the Astros, and our old friend Taron Willman looked at a minor league spray chart and found that exactly three of his batted balls were to the outfield, to left field, basically, to the left side of straight up the middle. That's fine if you're a left-handed hitter. <laughs> he's, he's not. He's a right-handed hitter. I remember I actually reached out to someone with the Astros, and I said, hey, is this real? Is this bad data? And he's like... Nope, that's that's right. And then the other thing I remember about Miles Straw, and it just made me laugh so much, is uh, during the off season uh, when the you know the sport was on hold, and a lot of the players were like posting these Twitter pictures of uh, trying to be in solidarity. And he posted a giant picture of him catching a fish, which <laughs> I thought that was great. I actually really like him. I I um, went up to him in the locker room a couple years ago, and I was like, Hey, did you know like Statcast tracks speed? And you're like the fifth fastest player in the major leagues. Like that's super impressive. And he looked at me, and he's like, Nope. Didn't know that.
0: <laughs> so I <laughs> well, thought that was funny. A couple, a couple other, you know, minor straw thoughts. Like, it's impressive based on what you're saying about 2016 that he made it to the big leagues and he just yes! signed a five-year deal for $25 million, right. which is pretty cool. It's and cool. I will also use this opportunity to drop a crazy fact about the Guardians that I learned yesterday that I'll probably drop again when we talk do our playoff review is that this year, the Guardians, other than a catcher, every other position on the Diamond, they have not had a batter above the age of 30 Take an at bat. Catcher is the only place. Every other player on their team is both. Jose Ramirez is turning thirty this week, but it is still his age twenty nine season. Catcher is the only place where they've had someone thirty or above take a plate appearances, which is just crazy. Um, and I'm maybe not unprecedented, but it's like it's still pretty wild, just like on its face.
1: Yeah, not that I didn't trust you, but I'm quickly looking here. Sandy Leone is thirty three, but he's a catcher, as you said. Aside from catcher, uh, Luke Miley is thirty one, but also a catcher. And wow. Have we looked up if that's a record is that unprecedented?
0: We'll have to figure out some way to contextualize it. I also saw the stat which apparently the the Guardians love to share in their game notes I've been told which is that their their average age is actually younger than every team in AAA, which sounds really cool, but also we realize like a lot of AAA teams have a lot of like, you know, 35-year-old like quad-A lifers to kind of bring up the average. So it's, well, it's still unique. I obviously I don't think that happens often. It's it's maybe not un- as impressive as it sounds. The fact that basically they're entirely players under thirty, other position players, I think is pretty interesting. And um, you know, obviously, I mean, the big breakout obviously has been Jimenez, but it's uh, it's a it's it's a team that's turned out to be better than a lot of people thought, and is now, I won't say running away with the, the AL Central because they do have a five game series with the Twins this weekend, who unfortunately maybe without Luis Ariz, which would hurt their chances. There's one last chance for the AL Central to really swing, and it's this weekend. If the Twins can take, you know, probably at least four games of that series.
1: Last Cleveland thing: Did you realize it's almost true for their pitchers as well? Guys under 30. No, but as I said it, as yeah. I said it, it
0: doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all.
1: The, the exception is 34-year-old Brian Shaw who has left and come back, and I think will be a Cleveland setup band for basically the rest of time. Like, he's been there <laughs> forever. Uh, they had Anthony Ghost, who, uh, you know, was a, a position player convert to pitching. I think I just saw yesterday, he's got Tommy John surgery. He's going to be out for a while, but he's 31, and that is it. I mean, Shane Bieber's only 27. I thought he was older than that. I guess he's not. Everybody, so else, everybody else is between 24 and 27, basically. Like, the entire, except for Brian Shaw. And when Sandy Leone got on the mound to pitch but I'm not counting that either. So that's interesting. I guess we should really look it up, not just batting, but from both sides, you know, setting aside catchers, I guess. Anyway, that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.